Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Uncle Sam Abroad, a new geopolitics podcast that looks at American foreign policy issues, American diplomacy, and the ways in which the United States projects its power. It's important to note that we have absolutely no affiliation and absolutely no agenda. The reason for launching the podcast was very simple. The more that we as Americans know about American foreign policy issues, the better. In today's episode, we'll be taking a look at one of the key building blocks of any country's ability to manage foreign relations with other countries, and that is the ability to speak other languages. How do you build relationships in faraway places if you can't communicate with the locals? Or how do you understand your enemies and gather intelligence about them if you don't know what they're saying? This is basic rudimentary stuff, but then again, as anyone who's ever tried to gain real command of another language knows, it's far from easy. Our guest is the program director for an organization within the U.S. Defense Department that specializes in churning out foreign language speakers. Diplomats, foreign service officers, military people, intelligence officers, they all need to conduct their affairs overseas with as much fluency in the local language as possible. There are hundreds of languages spoken around the globe, technically thousands actually, but for international relations purposes, hundreds covers it. Chinese has several variations, Arabic, has several dialects. The list goes on and on. The Department of Defense really sees an immediate need for this kind of talent. Being able to speak other languages really well with the right accent and being able to read them and write them is always going to help a country conduct its foreign affairs. And the United States is no exception to that rule. Enter the Defense Language and National Security Education Office, or DELENCIO as it's known. Delencio is simply an easier way to say the acronym D-L-N-S-E-O. Dr. Sam Eisen is the program director of Delencio, or if you prefer, the Defense Language and National Security Education Office. He's been in this role since 2011. Before that, he served as the director of the Advanced Training and Research Group in International and Foreign Language Education at the U.S. Department of Education. Before joining the federal government, Dr. Eisen taught Russian language, literature, and culture as an assistant professor of Russian studies at American University in Washington, D.C. from 1995 to 1998. He holds a Ph.D. and master's in Russian language and literature from Stanford University and a bachelor's in Russian from Amherst. Originally from Western Pennsylvania, he's speaking with us today from Washington, D.C. Sam, thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. So maybe you could just give us a quick overview of what Delencio does, what its mandate is, and why it was established, and we can go from there. Okay, so there are two two parts to the Defense Language and National Security Education Office. Uh, we used to be two separate offices. The Defense Language Office was set up um, around 2005 uh, to address uh, clear language needs, particularly after 9-11, uh, that became obvious. So we create talent for the entire national security community across the government. I see. And uh, and, and I want to obviously drill down, but why is, um, why is it part of the Defense Department and not the State Department? I would think that it would be more of a natural fit to be part of state, wouldn't it, if we're talking about uh, language training? Um, that's a great question. And I've actually, I've been at State Department working with educational and cultural affairs. I've been at Department of Education, at um, International and Foreign Language Education. Um, 
And, um, you know, it's a good question, but I think it's, I think it's primarily because, uh, you know, the Department of Defense uh, really sees an immediate need for this kind of talent and cross-agency, working across all the agencies, um, including the intelligence agencies and now Homeland Security, uh, which was formed after 9-11, and um, the State Department and, and other agencies uh, that are involved, FBI, for example. So how many employees work at Delencio? So we have about 25 federal employees, which covers all of the uh, DOD uh, language mission uh, oversight and and, uh, programming. And then, you know, there are about 10 of us working on the national security education programs. So total of 25. And then walk us through a little bit the, the partnership with the various universities. So how does that work? There are eight U.S. universities that participate, right, as as these language training centers. So there, that's where that's where actual people get instruction from different professors, and then you know learn and go kind of forward into those different agencies in the government. So there there are several different programs, and I know it's uh, quite a menu. The language training centers program um, partners universities with. Um, uh, DOD components. Um, this is a strictly DOD program um, that um, leverages the talented universities for language teaching and culture, uh, regional expertise for our DOD folks. Um, let's see, I think we trained about 1,800 DOD uh, personnel, military, civilian, and reserve uh, last year um, through these eight universities. That you mentioned, but we also have a total of about 50 universities that we work with. We also have um, an ROTC program, ROTC Project Go, that provides intensive summer training, language training for uh, ROTC cadets and midshipmen every year. And and how were the universities selected? Um, so we issue uh, the Institute of International Education technically. Uh, issues a a request for proposals open to uh, U.S. universities and colleges, and um, they submit their applications according to all the guidelines and needs of the program. And then um, we convene uh, panels of academic and government experts to um, uh, read and rate the proposals, and then we award the winning proposals. But does anyone from the say, Defense Department, go to the universities or, or have um, conversations saying, hey, we, we need your help. We need to populate our ranks with people who speak foreign languages because of all the work we're doing around the world. I mean, is that how it plays out in real life? Um, for the Language Training Centers program, um, yes, we sometimes we broker relationships uh, between components and universities or sometimes it's organic. For example, the University of Kansas is uh, close to Fort Leavenworth, and they've had a relationship for a long time. But this this program gives them a, an opportunity to really um, strengthen and, and formalize that relationship. But really, the language training centers came out of a study that Congress required in, in uh, 2010 or 2011 about leveraging 
uh, universities for DOD language training. And the conclusion was that it was a little bit patchwork. And what we've got now is a set of eight universities um, collaborating. And we also share with techniques and experience with the Defense Language Institute Foreign Language Center, which is the primary military language training center out in uh, Monterey, California. Just for listeners, can you rattle off a few of the universities that are you know, most active or what are some of the universities that are the main affiliates? We've got places like George Washington University, University of Montana, Indiana University, San Diego State University, University of Utah. So these are some of the uh, um, big players. You know, there, there are some programs like Indiana University, which prides itself on teaching over 70 languages uh, that have grants both all for uh, the language flagship program, um, for which they have three grants, Arabic, Chinese, um, and Russian. And then they have a language training center that does a lot of uh, training with um, uh, special operations, uh, as well as um, uh, the Indiana National Guard. And, um, you know, University of Montana, which has extensive training, uh, particularly, again, for the special forces community, San Diego uh, concentrates more on uh, the Marine units that are out there. I see. And so how many languages are taught when you wrap it all together? Um, let's see. So for the eight schools that are doing the language training centers, we have 17 languages. Um, but for the born scholarships and fellowships, um, you know, in a non-COVID year, um, we sponsor overseas immersion study in approximately, um, you know, 40 to 60 languages, um, 40 in any given year, 60 maybe in a, a couple of year span. Um, and, and they go to about the same number of countries, uh, 40 or 50, um, again, in a good year. Um, the last two years were not good years. Right. And so and what are the most popular languages? Is it what we might consider the, you know, the logical ones, Chinese and Russian and Arabic and things like that? Or, or I mean, uh, what are the most sort of in-demand languages? Well, so uh, among students, uh, undergraduate and graduate students, um, the top languages um, are Chinese, Arabic, Russian, Portuguese, Korean, Swahili, Japanese. Um, we have students taking Hindi and Indonesian. Um, we don't sponsor overseas study in uh, Western Europe or um, Australia um, or really any of the most popular uh, student uh, destinations, you know, Spain, Italy, England. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our students are going to Asia and the Middle East and Africa and, and South America. Right. And uh, so in terms of graduates, so when students are um, receiving language training in any of those languages and then, you know, they're looking for, for jobs, uh, wh- where do they end up? Do they end up, um, you know, what proportion end up in the military or the intelligence community or Department mm-hmm. of State or um, Homeland Security or places like that, or, or FBI, 
Um, do you have a sense of any of those metrics? Oh, definitely. We track that very closely, and uh, my colleagues have a have a service placement team. So all of the um, undergraduate and graduate students who go out on a born scholarship for undergrads or a born fellowship for graduates um, undertake a uh, one-year commitment um, to serve in a federal position uh, related to national security. Um, the preference is to serve either in uh, the Department of Defense, um, the intelligence community, which actually spans 17 different agencies, um, the um, uh, Department of State or Homeland Security. Uh, but we also have people who are doing important international work. We have folks in international infectious diseases at CDC. We have folks working at NASA. We have folks even working in the, the Agricultural Foreign Service. Um, there are many areas. Food security is an important area. Um, there are many, many areas that um, uh, most people don't think of as being important to national security, uh, but where we have um, uh, important global equities. Um, how about in terms of interpreters? So for high-level summits or uh, high-level military meetings or diplomatic dialogue, um, does do interpreters also flow through? um the, the program or or no well we do have what's called the national language service corps and we have about 12,000 volunteers many of whom are native or heritage lang uh, language speakers um some of whom are just americans who have uh, learned professional level language um and we have a database of about uh, they're actually a core they're not a database they're a core of people who interact with each other uh, electronically. And we are able to um, federalize them. We're able to make them temporary federal employees. Uh, they speak over 500 languages. And um, when there's a need, for example, if, if we did need someone to help with um, interpreting and, and supporting, say, a, a delegation to um, Kyrgyzstan or or uh, somewhere in Africa, uh, we can actually find um, uh, speakers of those languages, and it's all voluntary. So, um, you know, if it if it doesn't work that week for a given volunteer, uh, they're not forced to go, but um, they they're really committed. And um, recently, you know, we we have uh, quite a number of uh, speakers of the languages of Afghanistan. And um, they were mobilized recently to help out with the um, uh, outflow of people from Afghanistan. There are many different types of uh, functions they can uh, they can serve. And are there um, certain languages that the uh, military or the State Department is clamoring for and saying, you know, we need more of we need more Chinese speakers or we need we need more Russian speakers? Um, are, are they trying to kind of encourage the learning of certain language or dialects, um, or or is there enough to go around such that whatever they need, they they kind of can get, uh, or are they proactively um, encouraging certain certain languages? And if so, which languages? Mm -hmm. No, we certainly um, we don't have um, as many uh, language proficient um, professionals 
um, in the Department of Defense or in the State Department uh, or the intelligence community as we need. Um, so, um, you know, right now we're, we're certainly emphasizing training in uh, Mandarin Chinese and in Russian language, and we're actually um, expanding those programs uh, in the National Security Education Program. And, and we've set some goals to, um, you know, narrow the gap in, in Chinese and, and Russian. We're, we're doubling our, our number of uh, ROTC students uh, that we sponsor for language training in Chinese uh, and Russian. Um, but there are many, many languages that are really very important. Um, and um, we have a list. Um, there, there are two language lists, uh, basically, that we use. Um, one is the strategic language list, the DOD strategic language list, um, which actually is a list that uh, identifies the languages uh, that uh, military personnel uh, might get a bonus pay for um, for knowing. So it's an incentive uh, to know those. But um, we have German, French, and Spanish um, on those working with uh, partners and, and um, areas of the world where French and Spanish are taught. Those are, those are also uh, strategic languages as well as uh, languages of Afghanistan, uh, Persian, Korean, um, Russian, Chinese, and, and other uh, languages that you would expect to see uh, on that list. We also have a list of about 60 uh, languages that are approved uh, as preference languages uh, for our born scholars and fellows to learn. We cover quite a few languages, and, and they're all needed. Yeah, and, and you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that we don't have uh, as many um, you know, linguists or non-English speakers as, as are needed. Um, what's the shortfall? I mean, are we, are we, you know, um, woefully under or just, uh, slightly under, you know, how would you characterize that? Um, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that, um, there's a significant, gap and we're working to fill it. We're actually, our colleagues are actually working to uh, identify uh, that gap precisely. Yeah. Um, and so, and how would you describe the typical level of fluency of a standard graduate? So, um, you know, are they coming out um, really deeply knowledgeable? Is it immersive and they become experts and they know all the, the slang and the correct accent and they know, you know, all of they know how to read it and write it, or is it just you know remedial like basic training? Um, I mean, there's obviously a big difference between those two levels of fluency, right? And so, um, what can you say along those lines? Right. So I think um, the different programs have different profiles. The language flagship program, um, which has about uh, four thousand students across the country taking classes and, and uh, about 1,200 actually registered in the program. Uh, we teach uh, six languages, Arabic, Chinese, Korean, um, Russian, Persian, Portuguese, and um, uh, the largest being the Chinese and Russian programs. Um, and those students um, go through their four-year college career at a 
university that has a grant for the program, and they get up to an advanced level, but in fact is um, what a very good language major at a good university generally ends up at. And then we take them and we send them to an overseas program for an academic year. And then they get up to the professional level, uh, ILR3, which is the preferred level for an intelligence analyst or a foreign service officer. And they've done internships in their language overseas, and, and they know how to uh, do a professional presentation in that language. And obviously, you know, read, write, listen to media. Um, they're very well-rounded by the time they finish this program. So those students are exceptionally professional. And no one really thought that we could do this with undergraduates, but we are doing it with undergraduates. And that's, and that's an important lesson for the country, which is that we actually expect our undergraduates to succeed at foreign language. And then for our ROTC students, um, we want them to at least have intermediate uh, to intermediate high skills um, in you know, Russian, Chinese, Arabic that, that will be very useful um, if they get into the theater. We've, we're trying to, uh, one of our goals in that program is to graduate more advanced speakers. Um, I was just in, uh, we just had our ROTC Project Go uh, project directors meeting at uh, James Madison University uh, in Harrisonburg, Virginia. They send uh, students, ROTC students, to Kenya every year. Um, but, um, you know, we, we saw, we had some alumni who are uh, lieutenants and captains um, uh, in Army and Air Force now. And they were very impressive. A, a young woman who had done two summers uh, on our Russian program and, and studied at college um, now at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio um, in an Intel-related uh, position using her Russian. Um, a fellow who was in, uh, who had gone to the Kenya program several times, um, had of course done service in Iraq, uh, but then was posted uh, with the Special Operations Civil Affairs Unit in Kenya for six months, and he had just returned from there. So it's it's really great to see um, these alumni using their skills. It sounds like you know a great program, especially when um, you know it leads to to people in the field who have the language skills that are um, you know most most needed. Um, well, this has been great. I mean, is there anything just by way of wrapping up that um, you know you would mention or that we didn't hit on? Just to emphasize to um, uh, students out there and um, uh, people thinking about serving uh, in the military that language is a very important asset for us. We don't have enough of it. Um, we want uh, students interested in learning, interested in culture. Um, and uh, this is really an important skill uh, for us, not only um, to be successful in operations, but also to be uh, successful in uh, maintaining stability and partnerships and uh, avoiding uh, issues throughout the world by um, making uh, good assessments and, and good decisions. Uh, so it's very important. And I also encourage uh, parents uh, in particular and school districts to uh, uh, 
really strengthen uh, the language programs uh, for students. Um, you know, when we get a Spanish-speaking student, um, A, we need Spanish speakers, and B, uh, they are the best learners, uh, along with the French speakers, um, German speakers, uh, learning one of these other languages, Arabic, Chinese, Russian, because they've had the experience of learning a language and they pick it up much faster. So I just really encourage um, all the all the language uh, learners and and teachers and parents uh, to uh, to consider this. And it, it really does lead to um, very good, a very interesting work. Interesting. Well, thanks again, Sam. Uh, appreciate your views and, and thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for this opportunity. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Uncle Sam Abroad, your podcast source for informative conversations with true experts. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And remember, the more that we as Americans know about American foreign policy issues and how we're conducting ourselves overseas, the better.